The time to stand on the sidelines is long gone. Whether it is human rights, environmental issues, climate issues, civil rights, one of the things that I have learned is that my tradition and my lineage is not the only source of wisdom. Being open to understand that there are a million wisdom traditions around us. That should be so reassuring for us. That should be such a source and reason for joy and celebration. That we are in community. And we as a species, we really have to find love for one another to find solutions. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. Well, folks, it's hard to believe, but we've reached the end of the second season of the podcast. We really want to thank all of you for listening, sharing, supporting us. We're continuing to love making this show, and we already have some things cooking for season three. As always, we really value your feedback, and we want to hear what you love about the show and what would make it even better. So please take a few minutes to fill out our listener feedback survey. You can find the link at podcast.mindandlife.org survey. Thanks so much in advance. It really means a lot. So as we wind down this season, stay tuned to your feeds. We'll be back in a couple of months, and we may even drop a bonus episode or two in the meantime. Okay, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with environmentalist Dekila Chungyalpa. Dekila is the director of the LOCA Initiative at the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She also has a pretty extraordinary background, serving as the environmental advisor for His Holiness the 17th Karmapa, who's the head of the Karma Kagyu School of Tibetan Buddhism. And she served as the World Wildlife Fund's director for the Greater Mekong Program for five years. Through the LOCA initiative, she now works with faith leaders around the world to build community-based solutions for environmental and climate issues. In our conversation, we cover a pretty wide range of topics, including her experience of growing up in the Himalayas and feeling very interconnected with nature, and then contrasting that with moving to New York City, where nature can feel very far away. And that led us to discuss the dominance of dualistic thinking in the West— this kind of self-other division that we talk about a lot on this show, and the dangerous separations that it creates. And then, importantly, Dekila reflects on the possibilities for embracing an alternate framework of interdependence. She also speaks about the role of indigenous wisdom in conservation, her own experience dealing with eco-anxiety, and weaving together Buddhist values and activism. She also shares the many ways she's working with faith leaders to move the needle on environmental issues, as well as some challenges that arise in bridging science and religion. And she concludes by raising up the need for compassion and community in facing the climate crisis today. I'm really happy to be wrapping up the season with this particular conversation for a couple of reasons. One is that Dekila will be joining us in a few weeks for Mind and Life's Summer Research Institute, on the mind, the human-earth connection, and the climate crisis, which she helped organize. The event is taking place online from June 6th to 11th. You can check out the lineup at mindandlife.org. Just look for the speaker series. And we'll also add the link to the show notes for this episode. If you missed the application window for the SRI, you can actually still register to get access to all the lectures as well as all the contemplative sessions. It's going to be an amazing event. We hope to see many of you there. The other reason I'm really excited about sharing this episode with you is that I feel like it weaves together, on a philosophical level almost, so much of what we're up to at Mind and Life. The knowledge and ideas that Tequila shares speak directly to the problems we face as a result of disconnection at personal, societal, and global levels. And it also shines a light on ways forward that embrace interconnection and interdependence. There's a lot of wisdom in her words here. This might be a good episode to listen to more than once if you have the time or maybe check out the transcript. Okay, I really hope you enjoy it. And with that, it's my great pleasure to share with you Dekila Chungyalpa. Well, Dekila, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Wendy. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'd love to start 
just kind of on a personal note, hearing a little bit about your story and background, can you share some of your upbringing and maybe how that integrated with the natural world and how that's shaped your your viewpoints today? Of course, of course, I'm happy to. Um, I come from this tiny place called Sikkim in the eastern Himalayas. Um, it is now a state in India, but when I was born, it was still an independent kingdom. And mm-hmm. it basically is south of Tibet and sandwiched between Nepal and Bhutan. So I grew up in a very, um, what I realize now is almost an endangered way of being. Mm. You know, I grew up in a family that is very strongly Tibetan Buddhist. Our community is Bhutia, which really means from Tibet, actually, but also is part of one of the three indigenous communities in Sikkim. Mm. And so... I was raised in a family that was deeply spiritual and religious. And I also come from a family of female practitioners. Mm. Um, My mother took her vows and became a Buddhist nun later in life, just like my grandmother did. And um, I grew up in some really beautiful wilderness areas inside Sikkim because of that. And I think when I look back, one of the things I realize is that there was never a moment where I did not feel as if I'm part of nature and where I didn't feel driven to want to protect it. That it was always Mm. just such a big part of my identity. And a lot of it had to do with how I was raised. Um, And I think what I found joy in, which was being outside, being in the forest and um, yeah, so at least until I was 15, I grew up in that kind of environment and that Uh kind of setting. And one way to explain to people why it matters is because I come from a land which is protected by mountain Kanchenjunga. And Kanchenjunga is the third highest peak in the world, but no Mm. one has heard of it outside of the Himalayas. And that's because we, the the Bhutia people, the Lepcha people, the Tsong and the Limbu, we don't allow it to be climbed, Mm. right? You can imagine how many requests have come in from climbing expeditions and really, you know, sort of trying to make arguments around how lucrative it would be for our Mm. people. But we have been steadfast against the fact that Kanchenjunga is climbed because he is our protective deity and Mm. he is alive to us. And so... For me, you know, when I talk about my upbringing and what it was like growing up in nature, I think one of the things I'm trying to be much more articulate and about and express directly is that connection that indigenous people have to the land Mm. and how that is directly connected to the fact that 80% of biodiversity today is in indigenous managed lands. You know, so when we think about these things, it's really easy to romanticize it and not not acknowledge the debt that is owed to indigenous people everywhere. Yeah. I'm curious about your experience or contrasting your experience when you said growing up and being so interconnected with the land and with nature and now living in the States. Um, Can you just reflect on (laughs) what it's like living in in this country and the way that... (laughs) we relate to nature here or don't? Yeah. So the funny thing is that I knew I was an environmentalist only when I landed in New York City. (laughs) You know, I didn't know I was an environmentalist until suddenly at the age of 15, I came to New York. My youngest aunt brought me here to study. And uh, I I was so homesick for nature. I was just Mm. so filled with longing for wilderness that I found, oh, that is what I am. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, the absence of it actually made its presence known, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I went on to study environmental science and policy. I created my own major in undergrad. I, you know, did my research in the Mescalero Apache Reservation. And I always had this very strong sense that what I wanted to do was look at community-based solutions for environmental and climate issues. Mm. Um, And, you know, for the most part, it was really clear to me that I couldn't do anything else. You know, even though I had moments where I wasn't sure what that career would look like, because in the 90s, there just wasn't that clarity. It was like you had to pick a very specific science, right? Mm -hmm. And what I wanted to do just didn't exist as a concept, um, or at least in the schools that I was looking at. Um, And so I think maybe what 
made it all possible was that I feel very grateful and blessed my entire life to have had community around me, even if it wasn't my community, right? Mm. So Mm. I did my research in Native American lands, you know, I had a very strong community of friends. And then when I first started working, (laughs) between my undergraduate and my master's, I actually became a fellow for WWF in Nepal. And the first thing they did was send me out to look at anti-poaching and do an assessment Mm. on their anti-poaching efforts Mm -hmm. and filled with zero experience (laughs) (laughs) and all the, you know, angst and self-confidence that are like... (laughs) recent graduate has, I ended up writing this real critique of anti-poaching efforts and saying Uh that that particular project was treating the community as the enemy when they should be actually the solution. Mm. And, you know, I was called in by the head of WWF at that time, who was Mingma Norbu Sherpa. And uh, I thought that was it. I was like, this is, I'm going to get fired. I've only been here for two months. (laughs) It's my first real quote unquote grown up job. And actually, he asked me to write his speech for the next thing he was doing. And he was so excited and happy about what I'd said. And so I think one of the things for me is that even though, you know, I was, you could say in some sense, like I left Sikkim, I went to the US and I was really displaced. There, There is, I've talked about this before, there is a type of displacement that happens internally when you are very tied to the land mm. and you see nature as real and with sacred value. And then you go through a Western education system where... Mm. It's so binary, it's so dualistic, and there is no space for something that cannot be measured tangibly, right? Mm -hmm. And everything, all the value systems are really wrapped around this idea of rationality and objectivity. And so what kept me sane and what kept me going was that all along I had community, you know? And Mm -hmm. I I just feel such gratitude for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that you brought up this... um the frame of dualism and kind of reductionist systems that the Western education brings. I'd love to unpack that a little more from your perspective um, and how that then flows into environmental work and, and climate work. So can you say more about how this kind of separation and individualism and uh, yeah, even separation of mind and body, right? Which is like the origin of Descartes dualism how you've seen that show up and and maybe contrasting that to your experience growing up in a, with a totally different framework. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the most harmful things that happen when we are introduced dualism into our life and introduce dualism as the framework, right, for seeing the world and seeing ourselves, what we do is we basically introduce hierarchy. Mm-hmm. You know, and we immediately create this us versus other narrative in ourselves. And whether we do it to ourselves or whether we're doing it to our community or our friends or, or the world, what we end up doing is introducing a hierarchy where there are basically people with more value and people with less value, right? Mm -hmm. Your ideal of who you want to be and the person that you actually are. You know, your idea that some people are worthy, some people are not. That within a community, there are leaders and the others are followers. I think falling into that kind of binary is okay because we all do that naturally and instinctively. But I think you thinking that that binary is the only paradigm that works and that binary is valuable on its own rather than you know let's say um case by case basis right Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. i think that's when we really end up having this really harmful trope and what happens when we get locked into that is that we end up creating these in-groups and out-groups. So whether you're talking about racism or sexism or environmental issues, like what we're doing constantly is now um, basically having to, (laughs) in some sense, what we're doing is rationalizing to ourselves again and again why we have value. And Mm. the only, the shortcut in this kind of black and white world, the shortcut to to rationalize your own value is to devalue everything else. 
right? Mm. So, mm. you know, how does the narrative that man should rule the world show up? He should rule women. He should rule, um, you know, a white man should rule people of color, right? Man should conquer nature. Like, all of those things come because we are trapped in the cycle of having to reassure ourselves that we are worthy. If we didn't have this black and white view, if we didn't have this this narrative that there are winners and losers, you know, there's us and them, there's me versus everybody else, we wouldn't have this, what I think of as like the gospel of scarcity that has been created for so long around capitalism, right? Mm. Which is things are ending, grab what you can right now, right? Mm -hmm. um, do not share, right? Don't give into anything, you know, take as much as you can from it, right? So I, I think, there is definitely a place to question why academia clings to this framework and paradigm so much. Why is it that this is the only framework that's taught to us within the education system? And we are all, whether we want to or not, forced to participate in it if we want to succeed in that system, right? right. And I describe it as an act of violence because that's how it felt to me. You mm -hmm. know, I was good in school and you know, thankfully, I was so trained by my mother, who was a Tibetan Buddhist nun and teacher, to examine and observe what was happening to myself and to examine and analyze the world that I feel I was really protected from being harmed in a deeper way. But there mm. is a reason why indigenous people, people of color, you know, international students drop out of school so much. Mm. Because what we're being forced to do is to give up our own worldview. We're right. being forced to select a worldview. You know, we're at hostage, right? It's a hostage situation. You want to do well within this paradigm, you have to accept the paradigm. There's no space mm -hmm. for questioning the paradigm. And, and that's a trap, you know? And so for someone like me, I survived it by what I often describe as saying, that I was basically the science-based professional who was really successful at my job by day and then a practicing Tibetan Buddhist by night, you know? Mm -hmm. And I that's how I did it. But it created a bifurcation, and it took a long time to heal that and bring that together. Yeah, yeah. That's so rich. Can you share from your first-person perspective? I, I love that you raised up that here in the West, and particularly in education systems, there is this dualistic framework, and there's no other, there's no other option, right? And it's such, it's just a given, it's an assumption. And I think that's so much a part of these very large philosophical frameworks and underpinnings that societies adopt. So I'm wondering, since so many of us, and, and I think many listeners come out of this Western framework, it's almost a little bit like, what is another, what would another framework feel like, right? Or, mm -hmm. So can you describe kind of when you said, you know, you were bifurcating your, your experience, can you just describe mm -hmm. that other framework and, and how it feels? Well, you know, <laughs> being a Buddhist, you won't be surprised to hear me say that the other framework for me, of course, is one of interdependence, right? Um, you know, I... <laughs> Very early in my life, I was taught to understand that I didn't exist as an independent entity. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are all kinds of cultural ways of reinforcing that, including the fact that in my culture, it's very common to name, rename children again and again, right? We sometimes end up having four different names by the time we become an adult, you know? Oh, wow. And that is just such a big part of our culture, you know? It's happened to me. It's happened to so many kids I know. But I think there is a whole cultural um, mechanism in place to remind you again and again and again that you don't exist by yourself. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you have to be thankful to everything and everybody, starting with your parents, right? But going on to their parents and their parents. And then, you know, you're, you're made to look at the food you eat. You know, where did that come from? Who grew it, right? Um, and over time, my own reverence for nature, it, you know, I obviously moved more and more into the understanding the interdependence with the natural world, looking at the oxygen we're breathing, you know. And so for me, often the question I ask when someone pushes back about this kind of narrative is like, okay, so you feel yourself and you, that you are this independent self and you don't rely on anyone and anything. So can you tell me where the self 
begins and that oxygen in your lung ends. Like, mm-hmm. tell me that moment. Tell me that exact boundary where you are a self without the oxygen that's in your right. body right now, right? And the fact is that oxygen was not self-generated, right? It came from outside. And so I think having this framework of interdependence and understanding that the self is so completely dependent on all these different variables means that that idea of a self and other is much weaker. The boundaries are much more porous and thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, it allows us, hopefully, for a much more meaningful conversation around, you know, <laughs> the gospel of plenty, right? And the idea of of um, being able to place ourselves in other people's shoes, you know, being able to thin that layer enough that we understand that actually we are all part of the same in-group. And there is a very clear physical reason why, a scientific reason why, and that is that the earth is a closed loop system. Mm. You know, the earth, all the material things on this planet are in a closed system. Yeah. Can you describe just for the listeners what a a closed loop system means? So putting aside energy, (laughs) when you think about, you know, what the earth is, right, and you think about it in material terms, Well, what is the earth? It's made up of soil, right? We have water, we have soil, we have atmosphere, right? All of these things are part of our planet, which we take for granted for the most part. None of these things, including now vegetable matter, right? Um, Animals, you know, fish, insects. I'm trying to like describe basically everything that we think of as life on this planet are part of that system. None of us survive leaving the planet. Mm -hmm. And the planet in itself is like a circle. It's a cycle, right? We have all these different cycles that are happening that are all material, that are bound to each other within this closed loop. And we can recycle as, you know, a cell and an embryo that was born and lived a life, let's say a great long life for 95 years and then died and became part of the matter, right? In one form or the other, whether Mm -hmm. as ashes, whether, you know, whether as warm food, whatever that might be, Mm -hmm. but it never leaves the earth, right? And, Right. And the fact is that that means we are all actually feeding into one another, Mm-hmm. And we are all participating in a system that is one unit. So if we want to talk about identity, well, actually, if you can take a few steps back, the earth is its own identity, you know? We, all of us individually, seven and God knows how many billion people of us, all the insects, all the animals, all the trees, all the plants, all of us are participating and interacting with each other as if we are part of one big organism, right? And that's just biology, you yeah. know, that, that, that's not, that's just scientific fact. How is it that when we can understand this intellectually, it doesn't actually change our behavior towards one another? Mm. And I think for me, working with faith leaders was the way I could reframe and understand how we can get people to see that and then actually create a sense of belonging and then do something to protect our larger organism that we're all part of. Yeah, this is great. This is the next place I wanted to go is um, I know you've been working recently with faith leaders, and that's also through the the LOCA initiative, right, that you founded and direct at the Center for Healthy Minds with other friends of the podcast, Richie Davidson and John Dunn and others. So yeah, what drew you to begin working um, with faith leaders and interfaith context around environmental issues? There is a long story and there is a short story. (laughs) Well, if you have time, I'd love to hear the long story. (laughs) So the long story is that um, I ended up working for WWF. The person I mentioned, Mingma Sherpa, he eventually hired me to become program officer for the Himalayas. 
And I zoomed straight back home to the Himalayas to work on community-based conservation. And I thought that was the solution to environmental issues, where if we could empower and return environmental management to the community. Um, and then after a few years, I started really panicking because, and I think this happens to every environmentalist, but it was happening to me at that time, the realization that what I was doing wasn't making a big enough difference mm -hmm. at scale, at scope, right? That it just, it was wonderful and it had direct impact on the ground, but it wasn't large enough when we looked at the environmental and climate change challenges we were facing. And so I switched to working at the river basin management level, and I was the WWF director for the Greater Mekong region. And, uh, you know, the same thing happened. Here I am working in this beautiful river system, the second most biodiverse river in the world, six countries, you know, and realizing that, again, even at a river basin scale, it actually, the changes we're trying to create isn't going to happen fast enough or at scale. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Now there are terms for it, like eco-anxiety and climate distress, but those words didn't exist at that time. There wasn't this term that what we are experiencing and what I was watching my peers go through, like actual yeah. trauma, was, you know, it, that, that vocabulary just didn't exist. And so I was in a state of real anxiety and unhappiness at that time, you know, and I've said this before, you know, I was really successful in terms of Western, you know, what's the word I want, like <laughs> criteria, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I was the youngest conservation director in the field program for WWF US, you know, I was very supported at WWF, you know, and and I was deeply unhappy and having a crisis. And so mm. in 2007, my family dragged me to Bodh Gaya, which they <laughs> insist on once a year. Uh -huh. um, and it was for the Kagyu Manlam. Uh, my family is Karma Kagyu. Mm -hmm. And Bodh Gaya, of course, it's our main pilgrimage site. It's where Buddha was enlightened. Um, and His Holiness, the Karmapa, gave a teaching. And in the teaching, he was talking about the connection between vegetarianism compassion and climate. And by the end of the teaching, he ended up saying he was vegetarian and he laid out his arguments for why he was. But, mm -hmm. you know, and he went through the arguments for why as Buddhists, we should care and have enough compassion that we choose not to eat meat, you know, mm -hmm. if we have that choice, right? If we're in an area where meat is not necessary, you know, like mm -hmm. Tibet, it's much harder, of course. Yeah. And by the end of it, when he asked the people, and there were over 10,000 people there, if anyone wanted to be a vegetarian, the sea of hands went up, including mine. Uh -huh. And what was really interesting was that basically I watched a mass behavior change happen in front of me. Right. And I had this moment where I was like, how did I never think about reaching out to faith leaders? I am the daughter right. of a Tibetan Buddhist nun and teacher. And it never occurred to me that I had these allies, you know, and that was honestly, that was what my education had done to me. When mm. I talk about that bifurcation and the violence, that's what had happened, mm. was that the community I grew up in, the community that taught me the most, the community I owe everything to, is the community that had become invisible to me as yeah, a solution right. and as a problem solver. Um, and then karma is so amazing, right? <laughs> the universe works in mysterious ways, um, or, or our protectors do. His oldest and I had a meeting very soon after that, and he ended up asking me to create environmental guidelines for Tibetan Buddhist monasteries and nunneries. Mm. And I thought of it as a one-off thing. I mm -hmm. like to joke that I really, my reaction was so selfish. <laughs> it was, <laughs> oh my God, my next lifetime is secured. <laughs> <laughs> so I took two weeks out and took vacation and went and worked with these senior monks and nuns. And really, I thought that was it. Like, this is what I was doing. I was doing it for the Kamakagyu Kamsang. You know, here I'm handing this over and now I'm done. Mm -hmm. And this was building um, environmental policies for the nunneries and monasteries or... This was laying out why environmental issues and climate change affected the Himalayas and what Buddhism had to say about that. Okay, so this yeah. was basically the merging of Buddhist philosophy with environmental science. Okay. And it was for the monastics. And it was a way, you know, we I basically took the most 
sort of the, the issues that are threatening the integrity of the Himalayas and the Tibetan Plateau, and then sat with seven, I think, or eight Kempos and created the, the Buddhist framework for why each of these had value. Mm. And it was really beautiful, but very simple and short. Mm-hmm. What happened was that when the monks and nuns received it, the feedback was, this is great, but we actually need much more than this, and we mm. want a proper training. So on the spot, we were in Varanasi at that time, His Holiness called me and said, I, can you do a workshop? Because I know you do this for your work. Can you do a training right now? So on the spot, I had to wow. create a week-long training for Tibetan Buddhist monks and nuns, all these wow. tukus, all these romajis, you know, just like build it and basically explain things like the water cycle, the, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, right? Like really wow. explain the the scientific underpinnings for environmental and climate issues. Yeah. And yeah, so it, it went amazingly well. So this is how I learned, you know, this is what 12 years of working with faith leaders has taught me is that never underestimate them. Yeah. I really thought there would be resistance to it or that they, the science might be, quote unquote, above their heads, or above their understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. They just complete. Not only did they get it, they were starting to teach me. So that's there were moments in the training wow. where the conversation would flip, and suddenly one kempo or one lama would get up and just be like, "Let me teach you about interdependence. What you're saying to me is nothing new." Wow! Well, yeah, <laughs> you know. And so there was this amazing energy that was created, and. I, I, again, I thought that was a one-off thing. We're done. And what ended up happening was the monks and nuns started initiating projects. And now uh-huh. we have this eco-monastic movement called uh-huh. Koryuk, which has over 50 monasteries and nunneries all across the Himalaya, um, a little bit in Tibet too, doing environmental projects all under the auspices of His Holiness, the Karmapa. And, you know, the projects are everything you can imagine. Reforestation of indigenous tree saplings, um, water restorations, rainwater harvesting, for example, for safe drinking water, solar kitchens. Um, Almost all of them took their um, very pretty flower gardens and turned it into organic farms. Mm. Almost all of them have tried some part of growing their own food. And in the last several years, they've been very focused on disaster preparedness. So we have Mm. over 300 monks and nuns who are trained first responders, who can do first aid, who can take their robes and turn it into a stretcher in five minutes. So, you know, it's a very incredible practical force, right, for environmental and climate protection. But I think the entire time I was doing that work, so when I first began it and realized, oh, these are turning into projects, I actually started getting pushback from other parts of WWF saying, why are you only doing this in the Himalayas? Mm -hmm. Why don't you work with faith leaders in our communities? Because we Uh. have really influential faith leaders here. And so I was able to go back to WWF and convince them to let me open a new program called Sacred Earth. Mm -hmm. And I worked in five different places around the world with different faith leaders, including, you know, the Catholic Church and the Muslim councils and um, all kinds of different leaders. And basically, the goal of that project was to prove that faith-based conservation really moved the needle. Mm, Um, Wow. And so that's how the work began. <laughs> it really is a long story. <laughs> that's amazing. No, that's fantastic. And and so now, can you describe a bit about what the Loka Initiative does here in the States? Yes. Um, so in the 12 years I worked with faith leaders, there were certain things that came up again and again. Probably the most common request, interestingly, was never money. It was always capacity. Mm-hmm. It was always, you know, we have this pot of funds, or we have these limited resources, or we have these people, what we need is a scientist who understands our world to tell us what we can do with this that's best, right? Right? Like, what is the most effective thing we can do with the resources we have? And what they wanted was someone who would work with them to help them develop those resources. They don't need someone to come in and create them for them. They don't need someone to come in and fly in and be the expert. You know, what they're looking for is basically capacity and someone who can support them. Um, And then the other request I got very commonly was, can you create a safe space for us where we can interact with scientists and policymakers and, you know, basically secular leaders, and Mm -hmm. then also with ourselves? 
Because yeah. most often what would happen is they would be invited to come and cut the ribbon. So they would wear all their ceremonial robes. They're invited to a major environmental or climate event. They hope they're coming in as a stakeholder, but actually they're sort of ceremoniously ushered off the stage. Uh -huh. And then that's it, right? Yeah. They, they aren't brought back into the decision-making system. Mm. So they were really asking these two questions again and again and again. And after a long time, I realized... I'm going to have to do something like I cannot just hear this and say, oh, that's great. Someone else is going to create this. And so after Sacred Earth, I was really, you know, <laughs> humbled and happy when Yale School of Forestry out of nowhere gave me this award. Um, it, it's the McCluskey Fellowship. And that gave me enough funds and enough time to sit in one place and design a program that served faith leaders who work on environmental and climate issues. Mm. And that's how LOCA was born. So basically, I designed the LOCA initiative to be this platform that builds capacity and that convenes and does outreach for faith leaders working on environmental and climate issues. I should say for faith leaders and culture keepers of indigenous traditions. Mm. And then what we do is basically we have three different activity streams. The one that I think is the core of what we do is we have we work with three different groups at a time. So right now, for example, we're working with evangelical preachers and church leaders. We are working with the Tibetan Buddhist monks and nuns that I mentioned. And we are working with indigenous leaders in Wisconsin and then around the world as well. So these are the three communities we basically try and get as many resources as possible to. And the work is different with each group. Hmm. So with the evangelicals, we're really focused on creating calls to action around environmental creation, protection, um, and climate, right? And I have a convening that's coming up very soon that we're organizing in partnership with the World Evangelical Alliance, Arosha, and Care of Creation, which is to train them to do media. So it's a training on how do you mm. construct your own narrative? Mm -hmm. How do you address the fact that members of your own community deny climate science? How do you cut through that, right? What do you need to say to be able to reach people? Well, it's like you really need to talk on a personal level. And then how do you insert that kind of narrative, which is a very different narrative than is dominant in the media. How do you tell the media, how do you engage the media that actually there are evangelicals who believe in climate science and who are working on climate issues, right? Yeah. Um, and so there is this whole stream of training that happens with them on that. Um, with Koryuk, the most recent work with the monks and nuns, of course, was around COVID and making sure all the monasteries were prepared. Yeah. And the big lesson learned for me from that was that the monasteries that we had done disaster preparedness training with and the monasteries and nunneries that had developed their own climate disaster plans were light years ahead of the others. Mm. They, It was like... Once that switch goes off in your head that you can be ready and prepared for a disaster, the type of disaster doesn't really matter because you've already right. created that framework, created resource teams, you know, stored food, stored medicine, stored water, right? And so what was amazing to me is how, you know, a lot of the time in the nonprofit world, people really scoff at capacity building. It's kind mm. of not trendy, you know. Huh. They, they aren't drones, right? They're, they're just not trendy. Yeah. And yet, at the end of the day, community by community, it's the work that moves us forward as a society. And so it just reinforces my conviction that that has to be the core of what we do for those of us who are in this world um, of nonprofit and service. So that was one activity stream. The other work we do is very much trying to build resources around eco-anxiety and climate distress that I mentioned mm. to you earlier. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, so what we are, you know, being housed at the Center for Healthy Minds, which, which is very focused on well-being, you know, the vision for LOCA is really simple. It's that inner community and planetary resilience are interdependent. You cannot mm. have any one of these things without working on the other two. And so for us, the inner part is really crucial. And being based at Center for Healthy Minds and then being a partnership across the university, we're able to draw on all kinds of resources, you know, from the psychology department, from the humanities department, environmental studies, to basically empower people to understand that part of this narrative around being weak and helpless against the tides of environmental and climate destruction 
can be changed, that mm-hmm. we actually are able to address and work on these issues without feeling overwhelmed and without feeling despair, and that there are methods we can use, you know, contemplative me- methods, right, modern methods, nature-based methods that help protect and build our inner resilience while we're doing that this work. Um, and so that is one core component of it. And then the third piece, of course, is the piece I'm doing right now, which is the public outreach and trying right. to... Um, you know, encourage people to break out of their in-groups and reach out to other people, right? Trying to get people, especially scientists, you know, if they bike to work, check out how many houses of worship are along the way. And if you have the time, stop by and say, hey, do you need help? Because all of them are trying to do something on the environment. just curious like working with so many different faith groups and then on top of that bridging science with these different religions which which many people often feel like can be at odds do you run into philosophical pushback between groups and given their different perspectives on on the world and um or is there some uh common fundamental place where you try to work from with everybody Mm -hmm. Um, so I get pushback. I've always received pushback <laughs> on this idea of working with and appealing to faith leadership for environmental and climate issues. And all of that pushback, I have to say 99% of it comes from the science and academic community. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. No faith leader has ever turned me down for a meeting. Huh. They might not believe in my worldview. It might end up, the conversation might end up going in a very random direction. <laughs> but the amazing thing, the thing that always still just, you know, fills me with happiness and humility doing the work I do every day is that faith leaders have already self-selected to care and to act and to protect people. Mm-hmm. They are a self-selected group of people that are driven to do better for the community. If we can appeal to them to understand that the well-being of the community includes the rest of life on earth, right? And the well-being of the human community is dependent on the well-being of the non-human communities. Like, that is it. That's all they yeah. need for that interest to spark. And here is this group that if you think of them from a scientific, academic, you know, activist perspective, here is a group. So therefore, self-motivated, self-organized. They are collectively the third largest financial investor in the world. They Mm -hmm. run half of all the schools on this planet. Uh, The Catholic Church is the second or third wealthiest property owner in the world. you know, 85% of the human population subscribes to a religion. Like, to me, I think the question that I always come back to is, why haven't we been doing this more, right? Faith leaders have been working on environmental issues for decades, you know. All three popes, including the current one, made a statement that climate change is real. Hmm. I think it was during Pope Benedict's time that the Vatican very gleefully announced that they were the first nation state to be carbon neutral, (laughs) you Mm. know. So... Actually, faith leaders have been doing this work all this time. Where has the science and academic and the activist community been, right? And so it's still interesting to me, and it brings me back again to this trope that we started with, which is the us versus them, and this whole dualistic need, and this this real uh, addiction to wanting to believe that rationalism and objectivity are objectively and rationally superior, (laughs) Mm-hmm. When actually mm-hmm. all of these are constructs that can be broken down very simply yeah. and easily, right? We are locked in this cycle where we are having to reassert the value of the education system we've all been part of. We are locked in this cycle and forced to to run the cycle, right? Almost like rats around a circle. Yeah. Like we're just yeah. constantly having to prop the system up instead of acknowledge that it's been flawed like every other system and that it's time to allow other kinds of knowledge systems to come in and other kinds of knowledge paradigms to come in, right? 
And I think that's where I, I spend a lot of the time doing my pushback, interestingly, is with this community, my community of scientists and yeah. academics and, you know, activists. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you bring in or, you know, what are some ways that we can try to challenge the, I don't know, unitary perspective <laughs> of this of this dualistic and rationalistic framework and bring in more views on interdependence? Do you have any um, ways that you that you yeah. try to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is why the public outreach matters so much. LOCA organizes a lot of different events with different partners, partly because we're trying to break down this idea that there is only one knowledge system of value. Mm -hmm. You know, we insist on having indigenous leaders as well as scientists, right? We insist on having representation from different generations. We insisted on having black people of color, indigenous people speaking as experts, whether it's from their tradition or whether it's from the Western Euro-derived knowledge system, right? Yeah. And so I think for all of us as individuals, but for many of us who are parts of institutions, part of creating this paradigm shift is owning up to the fact that we are part of the problem and part of the solution. And if we don't actively advocate for the for the transformation of the system, we are continuing a cycle that really is harmful on so many levels. Um, and I think what's really interesting to me, and this is going to sound very harsh, but I see this a lot among the Western Buddhist community and also among the academic community, is this ability to do all of these things in theory, to mm -hmm. sit and meditate on compassion in theory, right? To talk about the importance of diversity in a classroom and then not apply it in a practical way in our everyday right. life. So I cannot tell you how many Buddhists, for example, have come back and pushed at me because I talk about the fact that Black Lives Matter and sort mm. of said, you know, of course I believe, you know, of course I believe, I, I work on compassion. However, they would never show up physically for a Black Lives Matter rally or event, right? They would never show up when Black people right now in America and other people of color and Indigenous people are having to reassert their basic humanity on a daily basis just to say they are human and they should be valued as humans as equal. And it both outrages me on a moral level and an intellectual level, because that is a kind of dishonesty that I see, where mm. we are willing to be proud of the work and the progress we've done sitting on our mats and not actually changed anything in the system that props us up and supports us. Mm. And so if I want to challenge anyone, it really is the Buddhist community in America and in Europe. You know, yeah. it's not enough to sit and meditate on compassion if you are not taking your body and showing up with your body. Embody. What is the meaning of embodiment? It is to be in body. Yeah. This feels like it's at the heart of so many really critical issues that we're facing, right, as a society. So I feel that you're weaving together um, kind of under this frame of the problem of separation, you know, falls into then racism and systems of oppression and injustice, and it falls into our disconnection from the environment and what we've been able to do in exploiting and creating the problems that we face now with climate change. So I feel like the frame that you're bringing is really integrative, and it feels like it's getting to the heart of deeper problems than just looking at the way they manifest in these really tragic and, and problematic ways in the world. But there's something more core that you're getting to. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I really... I'm trying to unlearn myself, honestly, is this, this real <laughs> addiction to wanting life to be, um, uh, what's the word I want? Stable, right? Mm -hmm. Wanting yeah. life to be stable and therefore predictable and therefore comfortable <laughs> yep. and therefore controllable. And my mother would have been the first person to laugh at me if I said these are the things I want. Because if she taught me anything and, you know, verbally, orally, and with the example of her life, it was that what is the point? What a, she would have said, like, what a wasted life, you know, <laughs> that we spend all our time wanting to control what happens to us, right? Yeah, wanting yeah. to control. And we are so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, many mm -hmm. of us struggle with this in our practice, but there are people who are struggling with this in a real way 
because the system has disenfranchised them very deliberately. And so our comfort has come at a cost. And if we want to think about ourselves as karmic people, if we want to think of ourselves in our future lifetimes, then I would say it's time. It's time we look in the mirror and have a real reckoning with all those invisible people and systems that have been subjugated to give us our world of comfort and mm. our world of you know, even having the luxury of having meditation spaces and having teachers and going into retreat and feeling so very good about our progress in our path to liberation, right? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. uh, at the cost of whom? Mm -hmm. Whether we actively did it or not, we benefit from the system, you know? And so yeah. how is it that we are then so weak, honestly, in our practice that we can't show up where it matters? And when it matters. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've become more and more um, verbal about this as time goes on, because the what I've learned now is that this pushback that I get, right, the pushback I get around faith, not being measurable, not being objective, um, Buddhism, and, you know, the, our work to become non-attached, therefore, meaning that we have to give up our attachment to samsara, therefore having a justification for why we wouldn't work on racism or, you know, climate or environment or what have you, human rights, right? Um, mm -hmm. I could almost condense them all and give you, uh, it would be basically the same person. And so what I've learned over time, and because I've come across it in so many different systems now, is that this kind of pushback, this kind of intellectual pushback, whether from the science community or from the faith community, isn't about science or faith. It isn't actually about the paradigm. It's about the person and the mm -hmm. fact that that person does not want to do the work. And that person doesn't mind the status quo being what it is, you know? And right. so... I think I've become more and more verbal about it simply because now that I can, I've experienced it enough to see that I can't keep quiet about it anymore because it is infecting the system. Yeah. When there are enough white men saying that Black Lives Matter is irrelevant in an academic setting, that infects that entire system because it's white men who are in power in academic settings, right? Yeah. When there are enough Buddhists saying that becoming a climate activist is anti-Buddhist because we must practice, you know, non-attachment. That is infecting the whole system and disempowering other people to care about the climate issue. And I always find it so amazingly short-sighted when I hear Buddhists say this because it's like, you forget, remember, we're in a loop. We're not only physically in a closed-loop system, philosophically we're in a closed-loop system. Because guess what? You're being born again right yeah. here on this planet. And yeah. you will be reaping the consequences of what we haven't done right now. Yeah, that is so interesting. And that feels like a really, um, the, the philosophical framework of, of rebirth um, has such a particular drive for those who who ascribe to that. And I wonder if I imagine, you know, when you're working with evangelical Christians, right, you can't bring that frame as a motivation. Well, it's amazing to me that it, for a lot of faith leaders, it's just enough that I say I'm a person of faith. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about religion is that what they really are looking at is what motivates people. And if yeah. it, it seems to be quite often enough for me to say I'm a spiritual person and that motivates me, my faith mm -hmm. motivates me to do better and to serve the faith community at large. Yeah. Um, I have really strong friendships among evangelical leaders, um, you know, that, and I mean, I can't emphasize enough the importance of showing up and doing the work because that's really why. It's been yeah. 12 years and they've seen me for 12 yeah. years doing the work. Um, and they're willing to ignore the fact that I believe in Tibetan Buddhism. You know, we have right. a lot of jokes around it, how how slippery Buddhists are. <laughs> we are terrible <laughs> converts because apparently we say, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's the truth. And also my truth is the truth. <laughs> yeah, the relativism is a problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot of humor that goes into it yeah. and a lot of understanding of each other, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but it works. <laughs> 
you were just reflecting on people's resistance, right, to actually making behavioral change in their lives, even when they see, you know, this data, or it's still so hard to somehow integrate it. And you talked about this kind of addiction to the idea of being stable or the world being predictable. Um, I, I think it's really interesting to bring that up because in a way, like as biological organisms, we are in the business of predicting and trying to create stable environments, right, that we can operate in with mm-hmm. homeostasis and in the most kind of controlled way. Mm-hmm. And and then you're raising the fact that, well, that's actually not, you know, the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you work with, you know, because you also have such a, a view of biological systems and things like that. So I don't know, how do you navigate that tension? I, I think for me, you know, when I talked earlier about being in crisis in 2006, 2007, um, I think for me, it was this dawning realization that the world I'd grown up in, where it was a given that if you got a good education, you did well in school, you would get a job and you would end up having, you know, not just in America, having the dream that all our parents have wished for us everywhere in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It was this realization that this wasn't going to happen for the next generation. Because what we were doing at that time, I distinctly remember us mapping out different future scenarios around climate change. And I was sitting in the room with, you know, all of these demographers and all of these different types of scientists starting to understand what the ecological science was telling us and how it would affect the world and people. Right. And so having all these social scientists basically saying, well, this is the type of migration pattern that will happen. So basically, if what you're saying is this is how the river is going to change and it's going to create these kind of disasters, these kind of, you know, these kind of droughts, these kind of food scarcity, then let me tell you what will happen to people and all of that becoming real to me. And so I had to let go of the idea in my work as a field conservationist, that our goal was to return to this pristine world that existed at some point, right? Mm -hmm. This idea of a pristine biodiversity, this idea of, you know, the planet being in this perfect balance that it was some in the old days of yore. Yeah, yeah. I had to completely let that go because that was clearly not going to happen, right? Yeah. So what can come instead of that? Well, interestingly, what comes instead of that is actually working on the ability to bounce back for ecosystems, working on the ability to bounce back for human populations. And that's how my framework shifted to one of resilience. So the interesting thing about resilience is that it means exactly the same thing, whether you look at it psychologically, in terms of sociology or ecologically, right? Mm -hmm. It basically is the ability to bounce back from a threat. It doesn't mean returning to how things were, (laughs) Right. You know, you can be in a very unstable situation still, but you can anticipate the threat, adapt to it and respond to it from a place which isn't completely that of a victim. Right. It's of a survivor. And to me, that rethinking through that and understanding that from my own Buddhist philosophy. Right. And from my own Buddhist ethos. Right. And then from a scientific perspective meant that it completely changed the way I wanted to do work. Mm. You know, it meant that I really had to walk away from what I knew and what I loved, which was really being in a forest and getting to see as many wildlife as possible. Yeah. Um, and move towards actually working with people who spend their entire lives working on inner resilience and thinking about resilience. And for me, that was the faith community, right? Yeah. Which was to understand that how do we psychologically, spiritually prepare people and communities to bounce back. The world that we now are in is not a predictable world. I'm so sorry. It's not a stable world. It will be less stable and less predictable as time goes on because we are in a system of, you know, what? We, so I, I don't enjoy using the language that is often used around environmental and climate change, which is very like, we have, you know, X amount of years left and time is right. ticking, tick tock, tick tock. Like that doesn't right. help anyone or anything. Right. But I think it, we have to be fair to the younger generations to acknowledge that their world is completely different than ours. They are growing up in a world where it's just disaster upon disaster 
And there are a series of knock-on effects, right, that we have not even understood, studied, or managed to have conclusive sort of, you know, strategies towards, right? Yeah. And I think the thing we can do, though, for the next generation, the thing that we can do for people everywhere, marginalized people in particular, women and children who we know are 80% of climate victims, right? What we can do is, is actually create systems of resilience and create ad- adaptability as a strength, right? To get people to understand that, yes, we cannot control what happens out there, but what we can do is make you as strong as p- possible to withstand that. The other part that I'm really focused on is this breaking down, once again, this very dualistic notion and this kind of hierarchy that exists in the science world, which is one solution is better than the other. Mm. So we have spent internally having an argument for years around mitigation versus adaptation. So mitigation is basically you avert the climate crisis, right? You come up with all these solutions to change it. Adaptation is, this is the climate crisis. This is, we need to get the communities to be, to adapt to it. Yeah. And a lot of our arguments, a lot of our funding, a lot of priorities within our organizations end up being locked in this this debate and, and sort of, you know, forced to justify again and again that this is my stance when actually we need both it's so apparent we need both right there's no way we can do it all and actually people do need to specialize as well within that right you can't ask an immigrant single mom who's arrived in this country and is trying to take care of her kids that she needs to care about climate change as well as well as lead in the water as well as PFAS in the water as well as whether her kid is safe going to school or not you know like we are asking too many people to do too many things while creating a hierarchy and telling them what they're doing is just not enough. Mm. And so I think using compassion as an organizing principle for environmental and climate issues is so crucial. It saves lives. Compassion saves lives, you know? Mm. And I think encouraging everybody to do the bit that they can and being able to count that as part of the larger progress is so important instead of tearing each other down, you know? And unfortunately, that's still very much the driving energy. Yeah. Well, thank you. There's so much much richness in there. I really appreciate all that you shared. I feel like you've given a lot of of important take-homes and action steps, but is there anything that you want to pull out and highlight for our listeners just kind of as a a take-home? Maybe, if if there is anything I had to say. (laughs) Um, I think it really would be the time to stand on the sidelines is long gone. You know, whether it is human rights, whether it is, you know, um, environmental issues, climate issues, like civil rights, like one of the things that I have loved and really learned so much from is recognizing that my tradition and my lineage is not the only source of wisdom. You know, it's like Mm. being open to understand that there are a million lineages and a million wisdom traditions around us. And that what I know is like not even a 0.0001% of what we collectively know, right? And that should be so reassuring for us. That should be such a source and reason for joy and celebration that we are not having to carry ourselves as the leaders and the heroes of our stories, that we are in community. You know, I would love to develop a coat check for hubris. <laughs> like, like you could just hang yes. it and be like, I'm giving it in. When I get five people to that sign my token, great. I'll come back for it. You know, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> because I, I, I think a lot of the time us being in this, these fights to prove that our system is better, whatever that system is, right? Whether it's science versus religion, mm. whether it's like you, our lineage versus their lineage, whether whatever that is, like... All that energy that goes into proving that is just part of our ignorance and part of the trap, you know? And it's like, we're out of time. We're out of time for this kind of hubristic, egoistic battles. Like, if Mm. we are not learning in community and working in community, our time on this planet, this beautiful, beautiful, like completely 
absolutely unique planet is up. You know, it, it's a time when we as a species, like, we really have to think of ourselves collectively and find love for one another to, to find solutions. Well, Dakila, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. This has been really inspirational, and um, I'm so excited uh, to see you also at the Summer Research Institute very soon. I know, I'm so excited. It's going to be fantastic. It's such a great array of speakers. It was lovely speaking with you, Wendy. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. Music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes and share it with a friend. If something in this conversation sparked insight for you, we'd love to know about it. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. There you can also support our work, including this podcast. <laughs>